0: So it is day 9 of 10 of self-isolation. The kids are playing Pokemon in the other room. My wife is upstairs doing remote general practice and I have the first opportunity to maybe just do a very quick podcast. It's Friday the 16th of July. This is the Hot Topics Podcast. This is the Hot Topics Podcast. This is the Hot Topics Podcast. Welcome everyone, thanks for joining us on the Hot Topics podcast, my name is Neil Tucker and you are joining me from my kitchen. Sound quality may not be the best on this one, I've got the kids in the background chirping away, I've got the baked potatoes in the oven baking away and this is gonna have to be the quickest podcast I've ever put together in my life. So uh, we are gonna talk about uh, where we're at in general practice right now, particularly in the context of COVID and then we're gonna have a look at some research on drug optimization regimes in the multimorbid population. We're going to have a quick think about low back pain and antispasmodics and then I think that'll be enough for today. So I wonder how many of you guys out there are subject to the 500,000 pings that happened last week from the NHS COVID app. Were you like us and you are now self-isolating? Have you just spent your last few working days doing general practice from home? If so, how is that working out for you? For me, I actually find the experience not unpleasant. In fact, maybe it's more pleasant than a normal day. There is the general feeling of guilt that your colleagues are having to pick up the slack because you can't be seeing people face-to-face right now. But time and again, we find that those patients who thought they desperately needed to come in to see us actually don't really mind having a phone call or doing it via video consultation. And most of mine that had been converted from the former to the latter um, had already guessed that we were having to self-isolate. So this is what freedom feels like, trapped in a house for 10 days on a never-ending cycle. My kids have got two more days of school and then they're gonna have to go to some holiday clubs. Are we gonna make it through the summer? Are we gonna have to isolate again? Only time will tell, but the cases are on the rise again. The doors to the practices are open. The masks are off. It's clear that the government's goal for us is to uh, basically have all the population of the UK get COVID in the next three months. And initially, I couldn't believe that this was the path we were taking. I thought it seemed like a terrible, terrible idea. And I don't know if I am maybe just working through the different phases of bereavement but I certainly seem to have reached acceptance now. And now maybe I've come through the other side to the point where I almost feel like perhaps it's actually a good idea, or maybe it's the, the only real option. So the good news is you and I, will all be looking at the t- statistics and we can see that the death rates aren't um, ramping up alarmingly. But on the other hand, of course, the, given the huge numbers of cases that are expected, much more than any of the previous waves that we've seen, there's still going to be a lot of people in hospital there's gonna be a lot of people who are a bit unwell that are going to be needing our services and we're going to be the ones to be assessing those patients now so i think this is going to take a huge effort it's going to be a huge strain on general practice over the next three four well even probably six months isn't it and up to the other side of winter especially with this big surge in respiratory illnesses that we're seeing that are non-COVID because of the lack of mixing and the lack of immunity, particularly within the the young population. In fact, kids seem to be the sacrificial lambs here. So maybe it's the Delta variant that is doing this um, because in the early days, it didn't seem to affect kids very much, but now it is absolutely rife. It's gone through our local nursery, which is why we've Um, why why we've had to self-isolate. It's also gone through the teachers who were vaccinated and some of the parents who were also vaccinated. So there's going to be lots of people getting COVID. On the positive side, no one locally has been seriously unwell with it, but some of the adults, particularly the older adults, have been pushed to the brink of hospitalisation. So as we see levels escalate, we're going to see more and more pressures on the service. That's going to be pretty challenging for all of us, especially given that at any one time, I can imagine loads of us are gonna be self-isolating. Perhaps it's good news then that the, health, uh, that the government is considering letting healthcare workers not self-isolate for contacts, but just keep doing testing. This is a sensible strategy, otherwise we're gonna be absolutely stuffed. So in my mind, the sooner they introduce this, the better. Sure, it's not perfect, there'll always be some cases that slip through, but then nothing's perfect. Staying inside your house for 10 days and not being able to work because you've gotta look after your kids. That's not perfect either. And maybe that's the thing. You can't achieve perfection in any type of management that you do for this COVID pandemic. The idea that we won't have any COVID in the population probably misses the point because eradication, especially on a global level, we're nowhere near that on a global level, it realistically won't ever be achieved. And so that's why I think despite my initial horror, at the idea of opening everything up, I've come to the conclusion that well if not now when and perhaps it might as well be now certainly it's better to get some covid peak over with before we hit the usual winter problems then there's the thorny question about should kids be vaccinated and i know in a number of countries they are using the pfizer vaccine down to the age of 12 it's been shown to be effective in that group with no obvious safety signals greater than that of the older population in the randomized controlled trials. Of course, we know that those trials are potentially underpowered to reveal those um, important complications that might affect this group. And it is a really tricky balance. So I put out a, a blog a couple of weeks ago on uh, myocarditis in adolescents and younger adults having um, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. It's relatively uncommon, it's relatively mild, it seems to be pretty transient in the vast majority. I did have someone who wrote in questioning the role of vaccinating this group, sharing a website by a group of professionals called the Heart Group, H A R T. They're not anti vax per se but they certainly don't think that it should be given in children. And they certainly are big believers in opening up and removing restrictions for everyone. I think they present a pretty one-sided argument when it comes to thinking about childhood vaccination. But on the other hand, I do think we need to think about where the balance lies here. We know as you get younger and younger, your chance of having a significant problem due to COVID becomes less and less. In the first year of the pandemic in the UK, there was something like 300 cases of TIMS, this multi-system inflammatory condition that it can trigger off in kids. And there's been around 25 deaths, I think, in children in England since the start of the pandemic, thought to be as a result of COVID. About half of those were in children with significant underlying health conditions. And certainly there must be a strong argument for vaccinating those high risk children but what about the potential for side effects and complications in those who are inherently very low risk sometimes i think the argument simplified too much you look at the death rate or you look at the rate of severe conditions and you compare that to the possible rates of side effects with things like myocarditis for instance But actually, it's much more complex than that. And the pros and cons arguments are all riddled with huge uncertainty. And perhaps the most uncertain thing of all is the rates of long COVID in children. So to put that into context, the Office of National Statistics reports that 13% of secondary school children still have ongoing symptoms at five weeks In contrast, a very, very recent research letter published online via JAMA in the last few days was looking at um, seropositive children from Switzerland and it found at 12 weeks, kids with an average age of 11 or 12 only had a 2% chance of having ongoing symptoms. What do we make of all of this? I have absolutely no idea. Possibly the best thing to do might be to actually ask the kids themselves, do you wanna have a vaccine? And it seems that in surveys, a lot of adolescents certainly would do. They are less worried about the risks and they are more concerned about not being able to go to school, not being able to participate in sports, not being able to go and see their friends and do their usual hobbies. And they, just like adults, see vaccination as a potential way out. Okay, enough about COVID. Let's talk about some of the new research and let's kick off with the BMJ. So two papers published here. First is one called the Operum study. It's a optimizing therapy to prevent avoidable hospital admissions in multi-morbid older adults, a cluster randomized control trial. So I think what's really interesting here is a few years ago we all became aware about the issues around multi-morbidity and particularly this uncertainty about uh, using treatments that we would apply to single diseases to people who have multiple diseases and putting them all together and whether actually that's a sensible or effective strategy. Ever since then and we're going back sort of five or six years now we've been waiting for more data to provide us with some idea about whether we can modify what we do in this group to the benefit of our patients. So I should point out, this trial is not done in primary care, this is a secondary care study. So this was a Swiss trial. They recruited patients with multimorbidity, with polypharmacy who were admitted to hospital and the intervention was uh, either usual care or to have an evidence-based drug review with a medic and a pharmacist using a stop start toolkit that all of us will be very familiar with and then based on their clinical review they would recommend any appropriate changes they were particularly interested in whether doing this would then prevent further hospital admissions over the course of the next 12 months and the short answer here is it didn't work so Inappropriate prescribing was common, so they found that actually um, 86% of people had some degree of inappropriate prescribing, and on average there was 2.75 stop-start recommendations for each participant, which is a huge level. They then went on and implemented those recommendations where they could, and they said that 62% then had one or more recommendations successfully implemented by two months after the assessment. But the bottom line was that um, hospital admissions due to drug-related adverse events failed to be changed by this intervention. They also examined a range of secondary outcomes, so things like falls, pain, activities of daily living, death rates as well, and while lots of them looked like they were trending slightly better with the intervention, actually none of them reached statistical significance. So in fact we can't say that they actually did anything at all. So the authors had an extensive discussion in the paper about why they feel this strategy may not have been effective. It may be that the follow-up was too short. It may have been that their study population was too ill. 20% of them died within the year of the study. It may be that actually many of their recommendations were not implemented, for which there was a number of reasons why. So one of them was um, lots of patients actually wanted to go and talk to their GP about the recommendations before they made any changes. Although that's not to say that their GP was a barrier here. Indeed, the paper seems generally very positive about um, GPs and their response to this. Actually, they say um, it may be more that that these patients had further contact with specialists. And as we know, specialists are more likely to add medications that are relevant to their specialty and maybe not always think about the bigger, the more holistic picture. So should we just give up on this? Are people just going to get sick anyway regardless of the interventions? Well, I think probably the metric of drug-related hospital admissions is not the best metric for us. Um, What about quality of life? What about treatment burden? What about investigation burdens? What about the potential to reduce unnecessary workload on the practice as well? So I guess this is one of those times where you might say we need more data. I guess that's true. I guess it would be welcome, but also sometimes we just need a bit of common sense. Let's just get our patients off of those unnecessary medications. They're likely to feel better. They're likely to thank us as well. Okay. Our second study of the day is another one from the BMJ, and this is a systematic review of randomised controlled trials looking at the efficacy, acceptability, and safety of muscle relaxants for low back pain. So, I love this one because this is a common problem. We always get people phoning up about their low back pain. They're really distressed. We want to try and help them somehow. And guidelines recently have been moving away from recommending drugs. So we're pretty much not meant to give most of our patients essentially anything, especially not paracetamol and especially not opioids. Now, a lot of people of course go, oh, my back's gone into spasm. This happened to my own stepmother a couple of weeks ago. I got a call, her back's gone again, she's got a history of a bad back, it intermittently goes, often renders her virtually immobile, she's in loads of pain, she gets sciatica and it can last for weeks and weeks and she often loads up on every single medication under the sun that you can think of. I'm definitely not criticising her GPs for that. If she was my patient, I'd be giving her every medication under the sun as well. Now, diazepam is a common part of that. She commonly describes spasm, and I think we all buy into this idea about relaxing the muscles to try and relieve the pain. And although we know that it's not ideal prescribing benzos, most of us probably would be using some diazepam to try and help in this situation. But there's always that niggling thing in the back of our minds just saying, does this strategy really work? And Guidelines and research seems to keep suggesting that it doesn't really. But then in the real world, we've got patients who keep coming back to us and asking for more diazepam. So why do we have this, this discrepancy between the real world and research? So this systematic review looked at 31 papers, six and a half thousand participants with acute low back pain. And the bottom line is that it found considerable uncertainty about the clinical efficacy and safety of muscle relaxants. And there's a wide range of different pharmacological options here, including antispastics like baclofen and dantrolene, non-benzo antispasmodics, Um, things that we don't tend to use, things like tizanidine and then benzos, which basically just means diazepam. Right, between that last sentence and this one has been approximately 20 minutes, believe it or not, the kids are now all with snacks and they're watching another Pokemon movie. So um, normal life can continue, albeit possibly with a bit of soundtrack in the background. Maybe we all need a bit of diazepam for isolation. That could just take the edge off, couldn't it? Anyway, let's forget about self isolation. Let's get back on to low back pain. So, let's get back to the study. So, they found very low certainty evidence that non benzo antispasmodics for the treatment of acute low back pain might provide a small and not clinically meaningful improvement in pain intensity by two weeks. Benzos and antispastic medication had more moderate quality data suggesting no benefit. And there was low certainty data that all of them caused an increase in adverse effects which i guess no one is surprised about does this help us in our prescribing decisions i'm not really sure that it does how much emphasis can we place on low quality data and low certainty findings Do I think these drugs are great? No they definitely aren't. Do they make a big difference in most people? No they possibly make very little difference in um, the majority. Will most of us still keep trying them until we've got some really compelling reason not to? Yes I suspect they will and um, how did my stepmother do? Well things are getting much better It turns out that the paracetamol, the naproxen, the codeine and even the diazepam didn't make much difference for her L3 nerve compression uh, this time. What made the difference was her taking a slightly excessive dose of amitriptyline and at least in this family trial N equals 1, that certainly seems to be in keeping with the direction of travel of most recommendations in most pain guidelines in the last year or two. Okay, that's enough for today, I think. So I think we've got one more podcast before we're going to take a bit of a break for the rest of the summer. And I think we're pretty much done for NB courses as well um, until September. So do remember, you can watch all of the courses on demand if you want to over um, the summer holidays. There's the online modules. There's still our blogs and KISS summaries. They'll keep coming. And we'll be back with a brand new updated Hot Topics course in September. Also our Urgent Care course, Women's Health course and the rest of them too. So enjoy your freedom while you can. Don't get pinged. And we'll be back in a few weeks. Look after yourself. Bye-bye. And both together. This is the Hot Topics podcast. Woohoo!